The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Continuing now in our series through a uh, look at some elements of the Christian worship, the beauty of Christian worship, reverence and all, thinking about the subject of prayer this morning. So let me invite you to open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, If you haven't already, to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6, you can find that on page 811 if you need a pew Bible there in front of you. It's very important to always have God's Word open before you as we go through it together, read it, hear it, and uh, hear it proclaimed. Matthew chapter 6, and of course we're looking at the text of the Lord's Prayer this morning, but we want to be thinking about uh, not just this particular prayer, but how this prayer informs praying in general, but also the particular uh, aspects of corporate prayer as the people of God gather together in church. Now, let me give you a confession here uh, at the beginning. When when I was brand new to, you know, full-time being in the pulpit, one of the things that I had to do was I had to uh, print out uh, copy of the Lord's Prayer and always have it with me so that I wouldn't stumble through it and forget the words and all sorts of things like that, right? Because what's more embarrassing than a minister who fumbles his way through the Lord's Prayer, especially he's trying to lead other people? Uh, but I definitely had to do that uh, for a good long time. And of course, we're just mentioning this idea of uh, ecumenical services. When Presbyterians get together for, for worship, it's easy to pray the Lord's Prayer together, right? Because we all use the same words, right? Uh, but in other ecumenical services, it's always entertaining coming to the Lord's Prayer and having that little kind of mumbled hesitation through that, that line, right? Well, the, what's the rule of thumb for the Lord's Prayer? Well, Presbyterians are debtors, of course. Methodists are trespassers. And everyone else are sinners, right? That's kind of the rule of thumb there, praying the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but uh, thinking about this, uh, especially prayer in the context of gathered Christian worship, why do we pray all these prayers? And uh, what, what's distinct about them? You know, if you just flip through the bulletin real quickly, you'll see four or five different kinds of prayers. Uh, why do we do these things? Uh, some people think of prayer perhaps just as speaking to God to make requests of Him. I need these things. I insist that you fulfill my requests. Sincerely yours, uh, me. Uh, Do what I want. Accomplish my agenda for my life. Please. Um, This is oftentimes the way people think about prayer. Of course, it's an improper view of prayer, but more importantly, it's an improper view of, of God himself. Who is the God to whom we are praying to? One of the benefits, and this is gonna underlay the the significance of why we're looking at this this morning. One of the benefits of Christian worship and praying together in Christian worship is that the corporate prayers of the people of God together are one of the primary means of instructing our private prayers individually. How we pray together as the church will be one of the primary influences and instructors of how you learn to pray when you're praying on your own. So, corporate prayer informs our private prayer. And so we're thinking about all these things this morning, and we're going to hear from Matthew chapter 6. But before we do that, let's pray together, and uh, then we'll hear God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe, Lord, that we are a needy people. And we thank you that in the scriptures you give to us the food of eternal life, 
and the substance of what it means to live a life that pleases you. Lord, how we need your direction, but not only do we need your word, Lord, we need your spirit to understand it and to apply it. And so come, Lord, and speak to us through the power of your word. May it rest upon us, not just for the sake of information, but also for transformation. And so, Lord, come now and give strength to your word and empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5 through verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. And so let us continue to hear it this morning. Well, it's hard not to read that text in the pace in which we often pray it congregationally. Uh, and that is because the Lord's Prayer is something that's so sealed to our hearts oftentimes in the Christian tradition. It's one of the things that we learn first perhaps to, to memorize in, in the church. It, the Lord's Prayer is simple enough that uh, young hearts, little children can learn to recite this prayer as we often hear in our own congregation and we're thankful for that. It's a simple enough prayer that they can learn it and repeat it. Uh, but over time, uh, the Lord's Prayer is of such significant consequence spiritually to it that it nourishes our hearts even far past uh, the time of our youth. We grow and grow in our knowledge of what it means that Jesus is here teaching us how to pray. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is not just found here in Matthew, but it's also in Luke chapter 11. And in actually, in Luke chapter 11, the reason why Jesus first brings this subject matter uh, up is because his disciples ask him, uh, Lord, Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray, which I think is a wonderful question, a wonderfully honest question. And that's the introduction from 
Luke chapter 11, but actually here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is here speaking in the middle of a section in this early part of Matthew that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has uh, ascended up to a high place and he sits down, which would be a, uh, a position of teaching authority of a Jewish rabbi. The people would have been used to this kind of uh, position of they coming to hear the teacher who then sits to give instruction. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is this uh, lovely portion. And in the midst of that, of course, you have the Beatitudes, which are a more familiar portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Blessed are those. Uh, that's the Beatitudes. But here we find, uh, in the middle of chapter 6, this instruction on the Lord's Prayer, and really prayer in general. And you'll notice actually looking back quickly at verses 5 through 9 that Jesus has some instructions of things to do and things not to do when it comes to prayer. For example, in verses 5 and 6, saying that prayer is not for show. Uh, prayer is not to impress other people or to be seen well in the sight of other people. That's not to be the consideration that we give. Uh, we don't want to uh, just have people think well of us because of how we pray or that we are praying, the posture in which we take for pray. Jesus says, this isn't about show, this isn't about other people. He also says in verse 7, it's, it's not about length either, right? Good prayers don't necessarily have to be long prayers. And we can condense that down to say. In fact, most prayers in the Bible are actually really short. Uh, and this prayer that we find, this model, this Lord's Prayer, is, is one of the longer ones in the whole Bible, actually. Jesus is saying this doesn't have to be long. In fact, in the Old Testament, the longest prayer in the Old Testament comes from Nehemiah chapter 9, from verses 5 through 38, which would you know, take you roughly 7 to 10 minutes to read. Now, that's longer but uh, is it possible to pray for longer than that? Sure. Do most people? Perhaps not. The longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed that we know of is in John chapter 17. It's only 26 verses and probably would take you less than seven minutes to read for sure. So it's not really about length. And Jesus, in fact, says, look, it's, it's not about how long you pray, who hears you, how eloquent it is, how you stand, these many words that you heap up. It's not about that. But notice that for all the do nots and don't pray like this, but pray like this, for all the instructions, you never find the instruction, do not pray, right? Instead, you find three times in verse 5, 6, and 7, not if you pray, not if you pray, but rather when, when you pray. And I think that we can say something about the way that God has made us just here, that that God has made you with a soul that is inclined to pray. Human beings possess a soul made in the image of God that is inclined to pray, to seek help, to seek something beyond itself. Unfortunately, uh, most, in fact, all false religion is the, the seeking of something other than God. But you were made with a soul that inclines you to call out to your God who has made you. Uh, and so you've been made that way. We have this inclination. We, in fact, would totally agree that it's the right thing to do. But isn't it the case that we, we just, we don't? And when we do, even, we find some perhaps awkwardness to it, some fumbling around, uncertainty about what to say, perhaps. That fumbling awkwardness of not knowing what to say perhaps makes us so uncomfortable that we end up not praying at all. 
or sitting in silence wondering if I'm doing this right. Jesus is here teaching us how to pray, and, and in this, I'm just going to draw out some implications from this text that inform the way we think about praying congregationally as a people and what that does for us spiritually as we gather together. Uh, because as one of uh, my favorite Puritan ministers said, Richard Baxter, he said, by prayer, we learn to pray. By prayer, we learn to pray. There is no other way to learn except then to do it. And so what is it that the Lord's Prayer provides to us that bolsters our confidence, that gives us assurance, that helps our view of God and our view of self, that informs praying and particularly praying congregationally? And so I just want to organize these things around two thoughts here. One is a, a view of God, and the second is a view of ourselves. How the Lord's Prayer informs praying, particularly congregational prayer, through the way we view and think about God and also the way we view and think about ourselves. So then notice in this idea of our view of God, how Jesus, before he even gets to the text of the Lord's Prayer itself, makes two very clear statements about the Father's capacities. Do you notice this? In verse 6, we're instructed that Prayer is not to be some public show, but rather it is to be the, the intimate act of the believer to his God. That when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And notice what Jesus says about the capacities of the Father. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, the implication here, of course, is that God sees. God sees, at the clear point of the text, right, the capacities of the Father are such that he sees what other people don't see. And if you're not doing it for other people, then you should have no thought then to not allow other people to see it, realizing that God sees what other people don't see. What is that saying about God? Not just that he has capacity uh, to, to see things and know things, but that he is great and that he is distinct, that he is different from other people, that he has the ability to see what other people can't see because he is God. He sees what others cannot see. But also, notice the more capacities in verse 8. Don't be like them who heap up many words, right? For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Which is a helpful reminder to us that we do not inform God about anything. You cannot give God information. You can't tell Him something that He does not already know. So two, two very short but very pointed realities about who God is. He sees what other people cannot see and he hears what other people cannot hear because he is the almighty God who is distinct and set apart, which is exactly what the introduction to the Lord's Prayer is getting us to our, our view of God, our orientation toward God and to his kingdom and to his character and to his person and to his will. Your father knows what you need. Your father sees what other people don't see. And so therefore, when you pray, pray with a orientation toward God that is filled with exaltation, that is focused on him, that is uh, declaratory about his kingdom and his purposes. Notice what Jesus says. Our Father, direct this to him. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now just think about the fact that even there you have four very clear emphases directing us toward God himself. Directing us toward God who is a Father. 
You know, scripture is absolutely full of this instruction to us that, that God is, uh, God is uh, one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we pray, we are praying to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. But we are addressing God, who is our Father. And I, I realize that for some people, fatherhood does not bring about positive associations and connotations, perhaps. There are some people who have major roadblocks in thinking about God as a father because they've had poor experiences with their earthly fathers. Be very clear about the fact that God is a good father. He is a good father who cares for his children. Jesus instructs us to address him as father, the one who loves us, the one who cares for us, the one who knows our needs and is inclined to answer us because he cares for us in these ways. But call him your father. But don't be so casual as to think that his name is not exalted, which is why Jesus says that we're instructed to pray, hallowed be your name, meaning holy be your name, set apart be your name, distinct be your name. That, uh, this is honoring the third commandment, uh, to, to regard God as holy and not take his name in vain, but to honor him as set apart. When we hallow the name of God, we honor God's name. Our view of God is exalted in this sense because we are saying he is not like us. His, his name should not come across my lips except for praise to follow after it because his name is not to be used to swear with, most obviously, but it is also not to be used in any form of denigration or any form of lowly speech, but that when we speak of God, it must be in a hallowing sense of exaltation and honor. This great God who is our Father, whose name is holy, is to be our orientation, His kingdom, His will. Think about what that means then. Think about how that, that, that intersects a, a notion of prayer being just our wish list to God. When, when this becomes a controlling emphasis of thought for us, this great God who is our Father and our primary motivation in our prayers is His kingdom and His will, which begins to change the way we think, doesn't it? Because you and I are inclined by nature to build our own little kingdoms. You and I are inclined by our nature to insist our own, our own will and our own ways, our own agendas. Jesus is here saying the orientation of the proper posture in our prayers is to have this view toward God that sees him as lovingly close as a father, exalted as the almighty God, whose kingdom is shed abroad that we are to call our priority and his will being done our desire. And this view of God is what is needed for proper understanding. This view, this approach, have this in your mind, Jesus would teach us. But not just this view of God, but notice then in proper order how this view of God then informs how we make our requests and prayer, our petitions, our needs, our, uh, all these things as we view our own lives, our own selves. So you can split the Lord's Prayer into two sections if you like. Prayer to and about God himself. And then the regard of our needs in our lives. So our view of self here. Think about, think about this. When we pray to God, give us this day our daily bread. It's speaking about the way we view our life and our livelihood, isn't it? You can maybe bake bread, right? Maybe you can bake those things, okay? 
But when Jesus instructs us about this, he's saying that your life is not ultimately in your own hand. Your life is is not yours. The sustenance that you need to continue to live is a gift of God. It's not just food, of course. It is the sustenance of your life. You cannot sustain your own life. Your life is carried forward by God himself. Speaking of things that we can't do, not only our life and our livelihood, speaking of our daily bread, but also what else can't we do? In verse 12, we bring to God the need of our forgiveness because it is impossible It is impossible to forgive our own sins. We can't forgive our sins. We come to God empty-handed. If you want another illustration of uh, short prayers, very short prayers from Luke chapter 18, uh, one of my favorite parables, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Of course, from Luke 18, the Pharisee uh, is very proud and he, he prays very boastfully and the tax collector beats on his chest and simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. That's all he prays. And the Bible would lift that up as a a wonderful prayer. But just like we're being called on to pray for the forgiveness of our debts, the tax collector is illustrating here, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. Lord, have mercy. If, If you are not willing to acknowledge that, it is because you have skimmed past this idea of a holy God, which is why that comes first. And then, in view of this holy God, we're called to confess our sins. I can't forgive my own sins. And, you know, we we have these prayers of confession, and sometimes they're perhaps more um, relevant to you or not, or uh, hitting home to a particular need that you have. Uh, But listen listen to these words from uh, the prayer book that I use frequently, The Valley of Vision, about meeting with God, about meeting with God with the knowledge of my sins. Listen to these words as the prayer says, I am all poverty as well as all guilt, having nothing on my own with which to repay thee. But I bring Jesus to thee in the arms of faith, pleading his righteousness to offset my sins rejoicing that he will weigh down the scales for me and satisfy your justice. I bless you that great sin draws out great grace, that although the least sin deserves infinite punishment because done against an infinite God, there is mercy for me, for where guilt is most terrible, there thy mercy in Christ is most deep and free. Jesus says we should pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, have mercy. Our livelihood, our sins, and our weaknesses then. I don't have the power to fight my temptations. I don't have the power to protect myself, which is why Jesus instructs us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Or like Peter's prayer, which is really actually, I think, the shortest one in all the Bible from Matthew 14, verse 30, when uh, the winds and the waves were overcoming him and Jesus had called him out on the water and he was starting to sink, he just said, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Is, is that a good prayer? <laughs> Absolutely. 
Lord, keep me safe. Jesus, Jesus is orienting us in the Lord's Prayer with a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves so that in our hearts we would be inclined towards him properly. But, but how, does that, how does that begin to inform and form and uh, apply to what we're doing when we gather here in church? You know, I had someone visit uh, here say to me one time, you know, uh, your service is... Um, there's a lot of Bible, um, and you pray a lot. Uh, yes, <laughs> not quite sure how to respond to those types of things. Maybe th- thank you for noticing. Um, it's quite on purpose, actually. And I want to explain. I want to explain why Jesus is here instructing about prayer, but notice how it's in a corporate sense, right? We speak the Lord's prayer and we pray together with plural pronouns. We, our, right? Us, not me, my, and I. It's instructive, don't you think? That there is something about the corporate nature of the togetherness of praying this that is therefore formative because it's being instructed in the plural. As we gather together, praying about our trespasses and our needs and these varied things. And the reason why this is so formative is because in the Christian tradition, particularly in the Reformed faith, we understand worship as being called, uh, formally, dialogic worship. Which just means that when we worship God, what is literally happening is that we are having a conversation, dialogic, dialogue, conversational worship. That in our elements of the worship services, there are times when God speaks. Like when? Like when he is calling us to worship. When we are welcomed in the name of Jesus, the peace of Christ being spoken to us. When the word of God is read and proclaimed, God is speaking through the power of his word. When the benediction is pronounced, God is speaking to us. He's speaking to his people gathered together. And in the same sense, just as God speaks to us, we speak to him in the context of our worship services, don't we? When we sing. When we pray. When we uh, use our confessions and catechisms, we are speaking to God as he speaks to us. And there is this dialogue that takes place, a conversation as God's people gather together for worship. And, And this aspect of thinking about worship this way is a very pointed emphasis because uh, there was a time in the history of the church when when the people gathered together were not encouraged to speak to God this way but that they were rather restricted to a particular form of a liturgy and a language that they didn't even speak. They didn't even know what we're saying. So why does it matter what we're saying to God if we're not even understanding the language that it's spoken in anyway? Does it even matter that God is hearing these words that we're saying? But for the last 500 years, this has been a particular point of emphasis in the Protestant tradition and especially the Reformed tradition because we use words not in some fixed Latin order, but words from our own mouths, from our own hearts that the congregation is encouraged to make their own as you recite words that you didn't write, but nonetheless become yours as you pray them. That in your heart you perceive that this is something that, that I need to pray and the words that were written by someone else become your own words, but not just you individually, but also the we of all those praying the words together. 
In fact, after the Reformation, there was this primary emphasis on two particular prayers in the Christian worship service. And those two prayers were prayers of confession and prayers of intercession. Prayers of confession and prayers of intercession. And we do both of those, right? We have a prayer of confession and an affirmation of pardon, a declaration of that reality. Now, I've also had someone say to me before, you know, when it comes to this prayer of uh, confession, uh, they said, you know, I don't like that. I don't like that very much. Uh, because I don't, I don't want to have to say those things about myself. Well, are they true of you? It, does, it doesn't make me very comfortable. It doesn't make me feel very good. And uh, the same person who said that to me is the same person who now a couple years later also told me, I need to pray the prayer of confession. <laughs> every, every week, it, it sits on me in a way that is very meaningful because it confronts me in this reality. This prayer of confession is a very actually important part of our worship services. I need that. So the, historically, this prayer of confession has always been a very important element of Christian worship services. And, and when I go to a worship service and there's not one of those, I get a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> Because I'm not being given the opportunity to recognize corporately with the people gathered together, we are sinners, we have a great Savior, and we're coming to Him. So a prayer of confession, but also a prayer of intercession, we call it a pastoral prayer. But you know, look through the bulletin, we do all these different things. We have prayers of dedication, prayers of illumination, not to mention all these other times of occasions, sacramental prayers, ordination, missions, blessings, congregation prayers, elder-led prayers, pastoral-led prayers, silent prayers, uh, you know, call and response type prayers, all these different things. What's happening? What's happening is that the people of God God's own people that he has gathered together are joining together with one voice and one heart to say, you are our God and we are your people and we come to you as our Father. What is this, what is this then doing in your hearts? What is this doing in our hearts as the people of God gather together? You know, this is, these are not elements of rote, purposeless, meaningless, liturgical nothingness. Right? These prayers have sincere purpose to give to us as the people of God that, that strong sense of corporate identity, of we. You know, one of the greatest enemies, I think, to Christianity is independency that says me and my and I'm all in myself and it's just me and Jesus. No, it's not, actually. Your Christian faith means that you are joined together with all other believers. And that's why church is so important, isn't it? There is the we, there is the corporate emphasis that must be there. And this is being instructed to us even as we understand prayer. And prayer forms that in us as corporate identity, as the people of God, we together. And who is it that has come? Who are you? And what has brought you in here? Uh, there are words that, uh, that many Reformed churches use that comes from a church actually in Philadelphia. Famous words of invitation that... Um, I put on our church Facebook page before, but they are a wonderful invitation. Maybe you've seen them. They say this, To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, 
to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here, that's you. Uh, You've been hungry, you've been lonely, you've been sorrowful, you've been sad, you've been guilt-laden, you've been uh, burden-carrying, you've been all of these things. And so when we, together, as the people of God, especially when we confess our sins and when we pray together, we are acknowledging these things about ourselves. And it transforms the congregation. Congregational prayer appropriately transforms the congregation because you're saying, we, our debtors, the people who are around me as well are acknowledging their debts, their sins, It's not just me, it's us together. And also, helpfully, when we're praying about forgiving others, as we also have forgiven our debtors, you can't meaningfully pray that and continue to withhold forgiveness from others. These things are shaping and forming to a congregation. A praying church is a church that is formed by the gospel and being shaped by grace because it builds that sense of corporate identity So when we understand these things, these prayers in our worship services become for us hopefully a more deep and meaningful reality that we can, with the disciples, say to the Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray and find him instructing us this way and then growing in our understanding of the God that we call Father and the burdens, the temptations the debts, the sins that we carry, and just how to deal with them. You need that for your Christian life. You will be unequipped for your Christian life without these things. And so it's good that we think seriously about the beauty of the church as it prays together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to come to you through your Son who has given us access. We pray, Lord, that that we would place a, a higher priority upon prayer we confess the ways in which we have not and ask Lord for your strength to help us to view you rightly to view ourselves appropriately and to see the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen thank you for listening to today's sermon if you would like more information about our church or its ministries please visit edgingtonepc.org May God bless and keep you.